Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. How's it going? Hope you're having a good week. I know I certainly have. Uh, For reasons that I am about to explain, from the stage of the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, uh, take a listen to this. If I seem a little calmer, a little more at peace, a little more centered than normal standing up here, it's not an accident, people. I recently started meditating, and it is changing my life. Technically, I have not officially started the meditation, but I downloaded a meditation app to my phone which, as you know, is the hardest part about meditating. I believe the Dalai Lama said that. I'd like to tell you that this is the first meditation app I have downloaded to my phone. I'd like to tell you that, but it is not true. I have a folder on my phone that is just basically like the Enlightenment graveyard. It is full of meditation apps and breathing apps (laughs) and various things like that that I have downloaded and never even opened. Because I like hear about it or I I read about it on Slate and I'm like, this is the one that is going to change my life. And then I download it and then it doesn't really change my life. Even though I have been on this journey pretty much my entire life to try to find the thing, whatever it is, that's going to actually make me feel some sense of inner peace and happiness. Like even when I was a kid, when I was 10 years old, this was my little ritual. I would uh, do my chores on a Saturday. I would get my allowance, which was two bucks. I would ride my bike to the Jack in the Box near our house, and I would get a Jumbo Jack for 99 cents, and I would get some fries with the rest of the money. Um, Sidebar, that was about 30 years ago. And three decades later, the going price for a Jumbo Jack hovers around 99 cents still, (laughs) which seems like a big red flag. (laughs) So I get my little food and I would ride my bike home and I would sit on my bed, which was all made in my little room that was all clean from doing my chores. And I would get the food set up and I would take out the first french fry, and I would dip it in ketchup, and I would bite into it. And in the moment that I was biting into that french fry, I would feel a total sense of calm (laughs) that would last for upwards of 15 seconds. Because then it was time to start thinking about the next thing, whatever that was. And even though, intellectually, even then I understood that this idea of having to have everything perfect, even though I knew that was not like the recipe for happiness, I sort of have continued to live my life thinking that if I can just get everything perfect, then I can start being the person that I actually am. Like this, what you're seeing, in fact, 41 years of this is not even me. The real me has not even had a chance yet. I have been a guy my whole life who's just improvising and doing his best with the imperfection he's surrounded by. This is what a guy does when he has a credit score that is only barely north of 600 and a yellow lab dog that sheds everywhere. But when I get everything worked out, then the real me is going to come out and my real life is going to really start. That is somehow what has been going on in my head for a really long time. I was on a a jog recently and I like jogging, ironically, I guess, because I can just let my mind kind of wander. And where my mind historically wanders when I'm jogging is to strategies about how to perfect every element of my life so I can finally be happy. Which is healthy, I think you'll all agree. But on this particular jog that I was on recently, my mind decided to throw me a curveball. My mind was like, hey Luke, and I was like, what's up? Said, what about this? What if, we're just just brainstorming here, just blue skying, no bad ideas, what if What if everything wasn't perfect? And what if that was okay? (laughs) That doesn't seem like a mind-blowing concept for some of you, but for me, that was 
intense. I was thinking, like, well, what would that look like? Like, what would it look like if my wife was having a busy day and she could not give me the specific kind of attention I needed in a specific moment on a Tuesday? And then what if that was okay? What if I could live in that universe? Or what if, like, somebody listening to this radio show right now, somewhere in America, is like, yeah, that live wire host, those opening monologues, those are pretty self-obsessed <laughs> and pretty boring. <laughs> like, what if someone thought that, hypothetically, please, God, don't let that be a real thing. <laughs> what if somebody thought that and I was still okay? Like, what would, that, what would that feel like? And so I've started asking myself this question when I get into situations that make me feel anxious or sort of bad feelings. And I've been asking it of myself so much and it's been having such an impact that it started to become this like mantra. Like I'm just going through life and something happens and I'm like, hey, what if everything wasn't perfect and what if that was okay? And I have to say like unopened meditation apps notwithstanding, this mantra has totally been changing my life. Like there are so many situations that I've just, in like the last month that I find myself in that previously would have twisted me into a pretzel of bad feelings. And now I just go, hey, what if everything isn't perfect and what if that's okay? And my anxiety just like goes away. And here's the crazy part. Even when I say the mantra and it doesn't fix everything, that's also okay. <laughs> Waboom, think about that. You smell me, dog? It's like the perfect system because it's essentially foolproof. So I, as you might be able to tell, I'm very excited about this. And I've just been going around telling any person who I run into about it. And there's a person I want to talk about it with right now. And they're here. We're going to bring them on stage. Let's get George Saunders out here. George, welcome to LiveWire. You, you are a writer. You're a teacher. Uh, your latest book, Lincoln in the Bardo, won one of the most prestigious prizes in all of literature. What? Yes, it happened. No. <laughs> it really happened. The Man Booker Prize. When you found out you won that, did it bring you true inner happiness right away? Yes. <laughs> right away. <laughs> yeah, no. George Saunders, everyone. It's been great having him. No, you know, I, I, I noticed that there's a, you know, there's a good part, and that's, for me, as a person with career low self-esteem, it's kind of like a pat on the back, like, you wrote a weird book, people liked it, do a, do a weirder one, you know, that's the good part. And then and there's a negative part, which is kind of like on the principle that if you eat a lot of beans, you're going to get farty and bloated. So when you get a lot of attention, you know, you're going to get farty and bloated. And <clears throat> Yeah. Was there at least an afternoon after you got the news where just, you just felt so good and happy and like nothing could touch you? Yeah, relatively. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm, you know, I've learned to kind of separate out. There's a wave of something good or bad that comes to you and you can kind of work through it. Like this is the good part that will help me do the next book. This is the bad part that, you know, on award shows, they always say, I'm humbled. Totally the opposite. You know, you're, you're not. You're, so I think part of it is to kind of, and, and this is actually something I learned from writing, which is there's an essential energy in every moment, like in your story or in that moment of winning. It washes over you. Some of it's good for you. Some of it's bad for you. And you have the, the right, as you were talking about in the monologue, to kind of just look at it and say, I'll take that. I don't want that part. I, I interviewed Bill Clinton one time and asked him about... I, I'm not a, a graceful interviewer, so I kind of asked him about the Lewinsky years. And, and, really? And, yeah, I did. I did. did he know that you were going to ask him yeah, about he that? he was cool with it. He just said, oh, yeah, that was a rough time. And, but he said... Um, <laughs> but he gave this amazing advice about uh, criticism, which I think he got actually from Hillary, which was when, when, so, no, sir, when somebody criticizes you, your postural stance towards it should be wide open. Let it hit you. Don't go into a defensive crouch because that's kind of a courageous thing to do sometime later you'll notice that certain things are sticking certain ideas are still living those are the ones that actually came from inside you you know so then you'd be really crazy not to take that the good advice that actually came from inside you and was kind of awakened by this exterior criticism 
How much of your work, um, you've written uh, amazing short stories and Lincoln and the Bardo is, uh, is your first novel. How much uh, has happiness been a theme in your work or made its way into your work? Well, you know, it's, there's a, I think it's Van Mauterland said, happiness writes white. So it's harder to do functionality and happiness and love. It's, it's actually just technically harder for some reason. So my early books, because of that, and also because I was living kind of a... Uh, a little bit of a hard scrabble life tended to be darker. They're more dystopian and kind of uh, illustrating that Terry Eagleson idea that uh, capitalism plunders the sensuality of the body. You know, that was kind of the. Um, <laughs> I hadn't heard that, but I'll never forget where I was <laughs> when I did. <laughs> but so for me, the challenge as I get older is to, is to try to be technically more proficient so I can actually get that the beautiful stuff of life in there without being sappy. Because my life has been great. You know, we have beautiful kids that are grown and it's been lovely. But that's hard, actually. It's technically hard to represent that stuff. But it's just well, as valid as the dark stuff. Well, I'm wondering about that because you've been so successful. I mean, your, your books are amazing. The nonfiction stuff you've written has been, has been really great as well. And, and you, you, had a, you got a, a Guggenheim, uh, I believe, and this man Booker. Is there any danger of like the George Saunders of this era who's been getting a lot of acclaim losing touch with the George Saunders of the previous era who was writing all this stuff that everybody loved? 100%. Because, you know, what I found is as you move away from misery, you assume that misery has just vanished, you know? How convenient, you know? So, uh, so I always like to think, Chekhov had this great thing in a story called Gooseberries where he said, um, every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet with a hammer. <laughs> I have that, but it's just an Airbnb thing gone really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, but, you know, this idea that you can, uh, one of the things you can do through art is to um, just reawaken that sympathetic part of yourself that, that knows that whatever misery you've ever felt, it's alive in somebody right now. Whatever fear you felt, it's out there for sure. It doesn't just go away. We're talking to George Saunders, the writer and teacher. His uh, latest book is Lincoln in the Bardo. Um, the idea for this book came to you like 20 years ago? It did. What, do you remember the circumstances? Yeah, exactly. My wife and I were in D.C. with her cousin, and we were driving by a cemetery, Oak Hill Cemetery, and she pointed up at, the, at this crypt, and she said, that's where uh, little Willie Lincoln was buried in 1862. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, she said, that's also the crypt where Lincoln, Lincoln was so grief-stricken that according to the newspapers at the time, he went into the crypt on several occasions to somehow interact with the body. So I was just like, wow, that is a novel for somebody. But for me, it sounded too hard. <laughs> so I w waited 20 years to. <laughs> yeah. I want to find out more about this. We've got to take a quick break, though. We've got George Saunders here. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We'll be back in just a moment. Livewire gets support from Fully. Hey, do you sit motionless behind a desk all day? I know. It's not great, right? It's why everybody these days is getting those standing desks, because your body is meant to move, and no amount of after-work yoga and downward dogging and cross-fitting or whatever you do can undo the damage of being at your desk all day. That is where Fully comes in. Based in Portland, Oregon, they make and sell desks and chairs that have changed my life. Because right now, I'm actually sitting on a TikTok stool as I record this and my body is engaged, and the blood is flowing, and I am so creative. Can't you just hear it in my voice how creative I am? They're also the folks responsible for the Jarvis sit-stand desk that I use when I am hosting Livewire at the Alberta Rose Theater, and they are the exclusive U.S. carrier of the Capisco chair that I also use when I am hosting the show. Listen, I'm not telling you not to do yoga. I'm not even telling you not to wear yoga pants. Also, Say namaste if you want. I'm just saying, you don't have to do your body in by sitting still all day in a traditional chair in front of a traditional desk. Head over to fully.com slash livewire to find out about all the cool stuff they're doing. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater this week. My name's Luke Burbank. I am your host. We are here with George Saunders. His uh, latest book is Lincoln in the Bardo. This book is about Abraham Lincoln's son, Willie, who passes away, and he's in the Bardo, which is a, sort of a limbo, I guess, of sorts. And uh, you said you had the idea for it many years ago, but then you started working on it in earnest for about four years or so. Right. When did you realize you really had something? You know, there's, in the book, one of the things I did was I, I uh, quoted from historical sources verbatim. 
In other words, I plagiarized and all that. Yeah. That was an amazing part of the book. Yeah. And so there was just an afternoon where I, I had typed up all these historical sources, cut them up with scissors, was on the floor arranging it, kind of feeling like I'm just avoiding writing. This is, this is an elaborate route. You're doing a collage. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And then at one point, it, it described this party that the Lincolns had. And it was kind of this party that sent the sun into the death spiral because it was a very loud party in the White House. So um, I was arranging these bits, and suddenly this magical thing happened every writer craves, which is it stopped being writing and it started being event. It just, it just felt, wow, that party just happened in front of my eyes. So it was kind of the realization that even that weird thing that had nothing to do with me typing new text was part of my uh, attempt to emotionally move the, the, the audience. Uh, and then I thought, oh, this is really weird. And actually, it's, it's, there's a great feeling like you're feeling a little naughty, uh, like, oh, someone's going to really hate this, you know? And, and that's actually the feeling you want. Because if you can convert that person who says, this is a bunch of, this is fake news, you know, or whatever you say. If you can... Whoa, 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 whoa. Like, just, <laughs> we're trying to create a safe space for these people. Yeah. Let's take like a but if you, 45 minute time out on those terms. <laughs> if you can convert the skeptic, then, then you're really in intimate communication with your readers. Um, you obviously had to do a ton of research about, about Lincoln as well and about the time. Um, did you find out stuff about Abraham Lincoln that you had not previously known? Yeah, I just fell in love with him. I mean, he's, uh, one thing was that he was actually, even though he was known as being ugly, he was incredibly attractive to women. Women were always, no, really, they were really drawn to him. Very kind, very tall, kind of powerful guy. And he, he loved his wife so much. So one of the ways he self-gamed was to deflect this attention from young women. He had a whole system of kind of, you know, turning away from them uh, in the name of not aggravating Mary and not making her unhappy. So I thought that was kind of cool. Where do you find out something like that? I just made it up. No, oh, yeah. No, no, no. See? <laughs> God, no, you... No, that's true. That is true. You are a master, George <laughs> Saunders. But also, you know, the thing that I, I, I came to love about him is that here's a guy who's, you know, uh, he doesn't know it. He's in the last four years of his life making incredible progress, l learning new stuff every day, killing tens of thousands of young men with his mistakes, you know. And if you track those last three years, he's somebody who just kept opening up and opening up. And I think his, I mean, this is my interpretation, but I think his ego just really shrunk. And he became so involved in trying to <clears throat> bring benefit for everybody else that I, I, in Buddhism, I would say he's a bodhisattva, and you know, he's somebody who's uh, initially very large ego, in the in the face of this pain, kind of shrunk. And uh, so to watch him at the end, having realizations about race that we're still not quite, you know, we still haven't really internalized, was kind of really moving. You know, would you say that stands in contrast uh, to the current president? <laughs> oh come on! <laughs> when you when you go on Wikipedia under softball question, that's going to pop up. Well, I actually. I, I do want to talk a little bit about that world with you because you wrote a piece back in June of 2016, or at least that was when it was published in The New Yorker, uh, when the presidential campaign was still in full swing. And I still think it was probably, for me, maybe one of the more illuminating things about the, the sort of rise of Donald Trump. You went on the campaign trail and just talked to people at his various rallies. Um, did that then make you less surprised than the rest of us when he actually won? Or were you as shocked as, no, as we were? No, I was really shocked. I, I went before he was nominated, and it, it alarmed me, because mainly because of the extent to which I couldn't communicate with his supporters. Nice people, we had a good time. It was like a, like a Jimmy Buffett concert without music, you know, which is, <clears throat> but then... But when you got right down to it, that we, we liked each other, but we didn't persuade each other. So I've, I've come to think that when you look at Lincoln, you, you relearn what we all know, which is to be a human being, as you get older, the goal is to get more loving, less sure of yourself, more comfortable with ambiguity, more generous, you know. Lincoln did. The current administration, it, it seems locked in this kind of incompetent mode of fearfulness and distrust. And that's really weird. It's really not what we're about as a country, except some 38% think it is. So it's alarming, you know. And as an artist, I think if you step towards everything with sympathy as your first move, you actually get more information, you know. And then when you get more information, you're actually a better adversary if you have to be one. So I, I think it's actually a time when people who are open-minded and large-hearted can do both things, resist furiously and uh, love uncontrollably, and that's actually where we're, how we're going to get out of this mess. Uh, well, now it's time for me to turn the audience against you. Um, 
We're talking to George Saunders. Now, you, you got your graduate degree in, in literature when you were, I think, around 30. But before that, you actually graduated from the Colorado School of Mines and worked in oil exploration. I did. <clears throat> yeah, guys. <laughs> when did you... When? It was, it's mimes. Mimes. Oh. oh. <laughs> they have got to get a bigger sign because that is so confusing. And the fact that the two schools are next to each other <laughs> is very... When, when did you sort of realize that you were not, you know, oil, explore, oil exploration was not for you? And were you, in your heart, a, a sort of writer at that time, yeah. too, just doing something you thought was maybe a, a job that you could make a living at? I, I kind of realized it the first week of classes, because I, I had been a really bad student in Chicago, wasn't going to go to college, and I had these two teachers, the Lindblums, who intervened and actually called the school and got me in. So, and I love them so much. And I, when I got there, I realized that... Uh, I had to not flunk out because if I flunked out of there, I was going to go back to the starting line in Chicago and you know c circle the bowl. So even though I could feel I wasn't good at it, I thought you can't, this is a real turning point. You got to stick it out. So I did, and then I went to Asia. I worked in the oil fields, and uh, actually it was okay. And I was writing a little, and then uh, I had a thing where I, I was trying to do a Hemingway thing. So I went swimming in a Sumatran river after some drinking and with, and with no clothes. Just like, you know, that thing, that old sure. hard. Uh, but then I was swimming and there's a, an oil pipeline along the river and on the river there are like 400 monkeys. And I'm dog paddling there and I see them, they're all pooping into the water, you know? And I'm like, huh, I wonder if that's okay. It wasn't. And really? I, I got deathly ill for about three years, uh, gave up the job and came home and started writing. So, so, wow. So, <laughs> that is not where I expected that story to be going. So this is what I tell my MFA students, you know, swim in a poopy river and you'll... <laughs> well, yeah, you, you, you teach, <laughs> you teach uh, in the MFA program in Syracuse, um, and, and I, I wanted to get your sort of take on, on the state of things there. Uh, one, is there a particular piece of writing advice that you find yourself giving um, to your students, like, more than any other piece of advice. Yeah, so what I try to tell them is that there's actually this whole beautiful thing called revision, like radical revision, that if you're trying to find your voice is your best friend. You, you aren't necessarily your totality when you just talk, you know? If, if we both stand up here and just talk, it, there's some indication of who we are, but when you go back and start trimming that talk and cutting it down to its essence, that's another way that you can, you can weigh in. So to me, there, there's a great line, um, I think Robert Frost said this at a public talk, some student asked him a complicated question about the sonnet, and he said, young man, don't worry, work. That's pretty good. Now I tell that story, and then a Frost expert pulled me aside at a reading and said, he didn't say that. He said, he said, he said don't work, worry. <laughs> <laughs> I like it better the way you have it. I think it. so, yeah, yeah. Do you feel encouraged about the, you know, next generation of writers? I mean, are they doing things just differently than, than, than your generation can conceive of because of the way that they've communicated with each other, because of age? You, you feel a little bit of that, but what, what the best thing about my job is every fall we meet a new group of young people, and it just makes you realize that, that ta talent is eternal. You know, as an old person, you, you will get into that mode where if, if you're, you know, if your mind is a sphincter, it tends to tighten over time, you know. The, the... Is that a result of the monkey river? Did that happen to you because of that? But when, you, but when you see these young people, you're like, you know, if I think, if I ever find myself saying these kids today, it's just my mind being stupid, you know? So I am so cheered by, by seeing them. And traveling around the country, the, the generation, the young generation now is unbelievably, uh, compared to what I was, unobstructed and loving. And I'm very hopeful about the future. Well, I think they're in good hands with George Saunders teaching them. George, thank you so much. All right, George, here on, on Livewire, we're all about getting real and, and getting truthful. So in front of you, I have placed a jar on this broadcast desk. Uh, it's a jar of truth. It's got five questions in it, the five essential questions of our age. And your job is to pick one out at random and then answer it truthfully. We call this the jar of truth. You want to give it a shot? Yes, I'll, I'll take one out and answer it. Okay, here we go. 
Which is worse, sitting in the aisle on a plane when the window seat person has to pee repeatedly (laughs) or sitting in the window seat and being that person? (laughs) Yes. Elaborate. Well, the worst is when you're sitting in the aisle and the person has to pee repeatedly but won't get up. How? (laughs) That was an extremely efficient answer, which has earned you another trip to the jar of truth. Please reach back in and select another question, George Saunders. Is it ever acceptable to ignore someone's call and then just text them back? <laughs> I have no idea. Sure. Why not? <laughs> I, I think I just would like to just ignore both generally and really? go find them in person. That's kind of my thing. Do you, uh, uh, so, I, I mean, are you a person who still talks on the telephone? Because I feel like when people call me, it is an act of aggression at this point. Yeah, I know. <laughs> No, what I find is the impulse is to always answer with a text. And I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm like, you know, there's that moment where you could decide to call. It's always better to call. I think always better because it's, you know, it's human and it's a little scary and you, you can give off a lot of signals that you can't give in text, you know. What is your policy on emojis? I love them. I just discovered, you know, GIFs and I'm going nuts. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even type words anymore. It's just dogs sniffing cats' asses and so on. <laughs> You know, they have rescinded the Man Booker Prize before. (laughs) So you just might want to be careful if you go all emoji all the time. You may actually, you may have it taken away. I don't know. I I just emojied a little ghost with a tear running down his face. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those are very good answers. Thank you for answering the Jar of Truth. And thanks for coming on the show. George Saunders, everybody. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. I first heard our next guest about a month ago on a podcast that I love called The Mental Illness Happy Hour which I promise is way more fun to listen to than it sounds. Uh, His comedy lives at the intersection of super funny and super honest, and when I heard him, I knew that he would be perfect for our show. So please welcome Jay Larson to Livewire. What's up, everybody? Do you guys remember when life was enough? Before smartphones? Remember when you'd be at a restaurant and your friend would leave to go to the bathroom and you'd just sit there and smell? Waitress would go by with chicken piccata. You're like, oh, that looks good, that looks good. you just have thoughts. You'd see a spaghetti with marinara, and you're like, oh, I remember when my nanny used to make sauce because my mother was a single mom of four, and I'd be home alone waiting for my mom to get home. And I'd be like, Nana, can we eat? And she said, just wait for your mom. And I'd be like, I'm starving. And she'd dunk a piece of bread in her marinara and put it on a plate, and I'd eat it. And then you'd see a girl walk across the room, and you're like, I should treat women better. <laughs> now when you're in a restaurant, someone goes to the bathroom, you pull out your phone, you're like... What's the rest of the world doing? This isn't enough. No one likes simple things anymore. You know what I like that simple? Seeing three people in a pickup truck. I don't know what it is. I just see that guy in the middle. I'm like, what did he do wrong? What did he Is it every day he doesn't time it right? What happens? Sure, they're just headed to lunch. I know, but still, who wants to be in the middle? Nobody. Maybe it's just me as you get older, you think about the simple things. You know what's been bothering me lately? I was looking at my local coffee shop to see if they were open till eight, and I saw like a one-star review at the bottom of the page, and I was like, let me see what this is all about. And I open it, and this woman wrote this review, and it went like this. Well, I was in the neighborhood, and I needed a caffeine fix. 
boy, was that a mistake. I went in here and they were so rude to me. The latte was fine, but they were so rude, I'll never go back. I don't even live in this neighborhood, but if I did, I'd never go. And I suggest you never go either. You want to take down a business because someone wasn't nice to you? When did that become a thing? That people had to be nice to you? Do you go to a mechanic because he's nice to you? No. You got a good latte? Move on. And when did it become that all of a sudden, order coffee, guy's rude, that you go, well, I'm not going to say anything now. But when I get to my car, I'm going to tell everyone. (laughs) Why can't you be the beacon of light? You know what I mean? Why can't it be like, hey, I order coffee, guy's rude, and then you go back and go, hey, 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 what's going on? What do you got? Get the Mondays on a Thursday. I feel it. That's no good. No good. If he's still rude, that's when I pull out the $2 bill that I always carry. And I'm like, before you make that, what's this? Is that a deuce? Is that a deuce? Going in the tip jar. What am I, your great uncle? I'll see you over there. I think everyone just needs to go to a really bad play, or any play, (laughs) and then leave there and just appreciate that people rehearsed for six months. They rented a theater, they printed tickets, and that's what it was. If you can't appreciate, thanks. I like that, 25 people, that's a good crowd. That's a good crowd. If you can't appreciate something that's not perfect, you can't appreciate diversity or love or people or women, you know? That was fun at the end, wasn't it? She's like, no, haven't you seen the current climate? What I'm saying is, you're never gonna endure a marriage if you're looking for it to be perfect. Do you get what I'm saying? Because I'm married and (laughs) she's not perfect. Neither am I. (laughs) Let me just tell you something about men and women that it's a myth. Men are much more sensitive than women are. My wife sleeps like this, like a corpse, like death is coming and she's fine with it. I sleep like this, like somebody love me and it's not gonna be her because she doesn't like to cuddle. And that's an issue. You know, I recently got a zit inside my nose and I said to my wife, I'm like, I can finally understand what childbirth pain is like just based on this right here. (laughs) Hey, I'm Jay Larson, you guys. Thank you very much. Jay Larson. Jay Larson, welcome to uh, Livewire, man. Thanks for having me. I love this. Um, We're kind of talking about happiness this hour, and I'm wondering, have you ever met a stand-up comic who seems genuinely happy? Nah, not really. (laughs) That's how we find humor in the darkest spots of the world. What is that? I mean... I'm just kidding. There are some very happy people, especially when you get off stage, if you have a good show, because you're, you know, when you can bring laughter to people... It cha- you know, hopefully it makes people feel good. I mean, I think a lot of comedians have like a very dark past, things that have happened, and they've, when you can see to the bottom of the, the pit, you know what I mean, you can always find ways to like navigate to the, get to the top, I would think, I don't know. Well, how much of like your act and, and your view on life is affected by your childhood? You grew up near Boston, you did grow up, what, four kids, single mom? I was the youngest of four, yeah. I mean, trust me, we had a, we had a very, um, my mom was a very interesting woman. We went to, we didn't have like cable television. We went to the theater and we went to museums and my mother worked at a ballet and everybody had to play an instrument and I was around a lot of art and when we weren't doing art, we were sitting in parks watching people because that's what my mom would do. Let's sit and watch people. (laughs) And when you're eight, you're like, what the... (laughs) But now I'm older, like we would go for mystery rides. When you don't have a lot of money, you, you all hop in the Chevy that blows purple smoke when the defrost won't work. And you drive through alleys with no headlights on. And your mother says, you're on a mystery ride. And you're like, where are we? And she's like, we're in a shopping center, but you don't know where we are. <laughs> this is Livewire. We're talking to Jay Larson. Um, you, you also have, uh, you've written for television. I know that you have projects that are in development and you act as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there one of these things that you, f- like, you feel like you have a sort of special aptitude for? Are you a stand-up comic who acts? Are you an actor who got into stand-up comedy? I'm a human being who's so lost in this world, I will do anything for the appreciation of other people. 
It's what it ultimately comes down to. I know, every single day, I'm like, should I just stop doing stand-up? I, I, it's the most shallow form. You know, it's like a very, sometimes it's good, and then like acting is something that's fun, but I don't really think I'm that good. Honestly, I don't think anyone's that good. I think 10% of people who act are good. Everyone else is like, yeah, who can, everyone can do that. That's just a fact. There's Daniel Day-Lewis, and then there's like, all right, everybody else. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Um, so acting is whatever. Um, I really enjoy writing, but it's a lot of work. You know, no one really wants to work that hard. Ultimately, if I could do anything, I would open up a little general store, and like, I'd have a bell on the door, and I'd serve coffee in the morning, and I'd pick up my kids from school, and then like make dinner, and then go back to the store, and then, you know, you know, like you get your. You know, dinner. that's an achievable dream. No, it's not. I've been trying to buy this one place in my neighborhood, and the guy's like, "I want seven hundred grand." I'm like, "What are you out of your mind, dude? I don't have seven hundred grand." So you actually walked into the store and were like, uh, can I buy this store from you? Well, first I met his wife and I realized they weren't doing so well. You know what I mean? She was loose lips about it. She shouldn't have been. Then I got the husband. I got him on the phone, wrote up a proposal that he's like, why don't you come and have a meeting with me? Comes in. He tells me they're skimming off the top. They're not even reporting the books. So I can't get a, I went for a small business loan. I can't get a small business loan when he's telling me they're making 220 grand a year, but you're reporting 40. That's not helping me. Wait, so like. They're located at 226. But guess what? Everyone's cheating and lying and stealing. That's, you know what I mean? It's like, what do we. Not these fine public Every radio listeners. Lies. Have you sent a text message in the last two weeks? Then you've probably lied. Because it's the easiest way to lie now. You're just like, oh yeah, I can't be there. Yes, you can. You're a liar. <laughs> when you used to have to tell people to their face, you didn't lie as much. Now I make up lies. I'm like, well, I can't because I have to be with the kid, but I'll say something like, ah, we're making jam just because it sounds more fun. <laughs> I'm like, oh, let's have an interesting life, Jay. I'm making a fig spread. All right, Jay Larson, uh, along with getting real, one of the things that we value on this show is learning new things. This is public radio, after all. Mm -hmm. So to that end, we are very excited this week to debut our brand new non-accredited Institute of Higher Education. We call it Livewire U. I like it. Again, the uh, lawyers really want me to hit the non-accredited part hard because, like, Livewire U makes Trump University look like Harvard. Yeah. So just that's the level of education you might get here. Uh, this week, uh, Jay, we've got a pop quiz for you. Okay. We've been talking about personal mantras. I've been talking about my new one. We wanted to find out how much knowledge you had on the subject of mantras. So I'm going to read you an actual mantra that someone has and then give you some possibilities, and you have to guess whose mantra it is. We're calling this, What's Your Mantra, Man? What? Mantra, mantra man. Mantra man. We want to know what your mantra man. Nice work. One other thing. If this quiz ends up taking too long, mm -hmm. our producer and timekeeper, Laura, is going to play this bell. Which is not even a thing they do at college anymore, probably, but... It's also the same sound for the fire alarm, so if something is going on, don't anyone panic. We can all go down together. All right, so you ready to do this? Mm -hmm. Here we go. To give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. Is that the mantra of the runner, Steve Prefontaine? Thank you for yelling it out in the audience. Is that the mantra of Martha Stewart? Or is that the mantra of Guy Fieri? I think it's Fieri. Um, <laughs> Martha Stewart went to jail, by the way, so she clearly went the distance. She was very competitive. She but was willing to sacrifice. You, you said it, and a guy yelled out Prefontaine. I'll go with a guy who's not playing, but playing in the audience. You're right. Prefontaine. You've got one so far. How about this? Uh, everyone is doing the best they can with what they've got. Is that the mantra of... The current Pope, Pope Francis. Is that the mantra of the star of Punked and That 70s Show, Ashton Kutcher? Or is that the mantra of football coach Vince Lombardi? I think Vince Lombardi. You couldn't be more wrong. It is Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher. God. Everyone is doing the best they can with what they got. I look to him for, you know, inspiration. Yeah. Uh, don't be evil is the mantra of, is it Superman? Is it noted NBC sports commentator Bob Costas? 
or is it the corporation Google? What was the thing again? Don't, Don't be, be evil, evil is the mantra of one of those three. It's not Google. And can Bob Costas stop dyeing his hair? Dude, we know you're old. I don't get it. What, are we not going to watch if you get a little gray? I can't deal. Uh, anybody think it was Costas? Do you think it was Batman? Superman, Google, huh? by the way. Google? Google? You're going to go with Google? You yeah. are going to be 100% right. That is the See that? I go corporate mantra of Google. Remains to be seen if, if they're actually doing it, but that is, I guess, their corporate motto. Uh, mantra. Okay, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Is that the mantra of golfer and mixed drink namesake Arnold Palmer? Have a little, that's... Is that the mantra of actor and comedian Tom Arnold? Or is that the mantra of Mother Teresa? It's, I've worked with Tom Arnold, and... Uh... That's definitely not his mantra. Um, Arnold Palmer is one of my dear idols. I love that man to death. Greatest drink ever made. Big misconception. It's not 50-50. It's 70-30. I don't know. If it's 70-30. And if you have to ask what the 70 is, you don't deserve to drink the drink. All right. Uh, I'll say Mother Teresa. And you will be 100% right. I think we were hoping to fool you. Because a lot of people kind of think of Tom Arnold and Mother Teresa in the same Oh, yeah, I mean, very sense. much so, very much so. All right. A person who never made a mistake, never tried anything new. Is that the mantra of TV painter Bob Ross? A very big influence on my yeah. brother, who's an artist. Uh, is that the mantra of Albert Einstein? Or is that the mantra of Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas after her... NBA halftime. Whoa. Saved by the bell. Wait, hold on. Hand in your quiz. I'm Is it? It's Einstein. You are 100% right. Wow. Jay Larson, nice job. Thank you. Jay Larson, check him out at jlarsoncomedy.com. Thank you, guys. And the Crab Feast Podcast. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Hey, it's Luke. Special thanks this episode to Kara Hafner of Portland, Oregon, and Chaney Harder of Milwaukee, Oregon. Kara and Chaney are part of the Livewire member community, and they generously support us with a donation each month. We are so thankful for their support. It is really and truly, people, what allows us to keep this show going. So a huge thanks to Kara and Chaney. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. All right, Portland is, uh, if you haven't heard, a fascinating town full of fascinating people. Most of them are waiting for brunch. Um, since we're a Portland radio show, it only seems fitting that we bring one of these folks on the show each week. So let's do that right now. Let's meet a new fascinating friend. Jenny Brusso, you founded something called Unlikely Hikers here in Portland. What is that all about? Unlikely Hikers is an Instagram platform and community that features the underrepresented outdoors person. That includes people of color, fat people like me, queer people, trans people, disabled folks, and so on. We talk about politics and the outdoors, mental health stuff, etc., uh, you are originally from Southern California. I, I heard you were described as a, a club DJ. <laughs> what was your first hike here in Oregon like? Oh, my first hike um, it was uh, the Tom, Dick, and Harry Mountain Trail over Mirror Lake, uh, Mount Hood. It was actually terrible. It was one of the worst experiences I've ever had. And I thought that that alone would make me not want to hike ever again. Why was it such a bad experience? You know, okay, so the person who invited me to do the hike that day had just finished hiking the PCT. And... Which, for <laughs> folks outside of the Northwest, that's the... The Pacific Crest Trail. Right. It's one of the long trails. It goes from Mexico to Canada. And I knew that it was a big deal, but I didn't know how much of a big deal it was. And he was like, let's go on a hike. And I was like, okay. So 
we do this trail and it, it, you know, for most people, that's not a very difficult trail, but I didn't hike. I didn't do anything like that. So for me, it was really difficult. And, but I think a seed was planted. When was the, the first time that you had a good hike in the Northwest and you thought like, I'm into this? Well, about six years ago, um, I was invited on another hike. It was a first date with my partner who I'm still with. And I still felt like I didn't know what I was doing. I was wearing club wear because that's the only clothes that I had. What What does that mean? Like <laughs> I was wearing like a, a, a leopard spandex dress and tights and cowboy boots. And I had a full face of makeup and... You know, I felt self-conscious and and kind of, you know, insecure about my breathing, my sweating, whatever. But I, it was, it was such a transformative experience. Like I felt like something happened that day that opened me up to this new world. I needed something new and this was a new thing. I I think that uh, for a lot of us who fit into the kind of majority, I'm, you know, a white, straight dude. Um, spoiler alert for people who've only listened to the radio show. Um, it would never occur to those of us who are in the sort of majority cis world, whatever, that it would not feel like a welcoming place for some people to go out into the outdoors. Like, explain what that experience is like for, for people who don't maybe seek that stuff out because it doesn't feel like it's welcoming to them. Yeah, well, you know, living in Portland, you know, everybody has or everybody seems to have this sort of relationship with the outdoors, this sort of access. And the thing is, is when you don't see yourself represented in outdoorsy media, social media ads, whatever, it it doesn't feel like an invitation. Like I never saw myself represented in outdoors culture as a fat queer person. So I wanted to tell another story about the outdoors. I wanted to tell mine and also the stories of other people who weren't being included. So like, how do you go about doing that? Like, you get together with folks, you go on hikes, you put it on social media. What does this actually look like? Yeah. I shortly after started a blog, a personal blog, where I talked about my journey to hiking and all of the things I found as a, a, a fat queer hiker. Um, cause there's not a lot of gear and things like that for fat people. And so I wanted to share the information, also share just how this was all going about and whatnot. Um, early on, I called myself an unlikely hiker in a piece, and people just kind of grabbed onto it. I didn't think anything of it, but there, people were asking me, what are you going to do with this? So I started Unlikely Hikers less than two years ago, and uh, shortly thereafter, I started leading group hikes all around Portland, but now also nationwide. Um, and all kinds of folks show up for my hikes, people of all genders, sexualities, you know, races, ethnicities, like... You know, it, it's amazing. What do you hear from the folks who are out there who are showing up, like, for the first time uh, in the outdoors? Like, what, is it, what does it seem like it's like for them? You know, there's this common thread of vulnerability, and that might be really surprising to people who have an innate sense of access, but a lot of people feel like they can finally let their hair down, be themselves, that they're in safer, supportive spaces, and they're saying things like, I always needed something like this, but I didn't know how to find it. Well, how do people find out about an unlikely hike near them? Uh, You can find out about Unlikely Hikers group hikes on the Instagram profile at Unlikely Hikers and my blog, JennyBrusso.com. All right, Jenny Brusso, thanks for being our new fascinating friend right here on Livewire. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon this week. And our musical guests this hour are an American indie folk band who'd like to let you know that their new album, titled Appreciation, was recorded partially, at least, in an old airplane hangar in Kentucky. So just listen to this music with that knowledge, and everything is going to be okay. Please welcome Horse Feathers to Live Wire. Hello there. Howdy. So there's been this sort of thread running through the show about, about you know, happiness and, and, and mantras and things like that. So we, we asked you uh, to pick a song of yours that was sort of connected to the idea of happiness in some way. What did you pick? Uh, this tune, uh, it's called Without Applause, and it's the first song on our record that's coming out. Um, I found that this particular tune was, it was very cathartic, and it kind of 
I got to vent a lot of things. Um, I moved to Astoria, Oregon, and we didn't have sunlight for about 200 days straight. <laughs> and um, I, uh, this song, uh, I was kind of working on it in, in that period of time, and, and uh, I had my blood drawn, and my doctor said that I had like almost zero vitamin D in my body. And, and this, this was my rock. This song was my rock, so. Now that is something everyone in the Northwest can totally identify with. Right. So let's take a listen. This is Horse Feathers on Livewire. Horse Feathers right here on Livewire. Their new album, Appreciation, comes out in May. And that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to our guests, George Saunders, Jay Larson, Jenny Brusso, and Horse Feathers. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines and Fully, hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our senior producer. Melanie Sevchenko is our editor. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Jason Powers. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Our operations director is Tim Harkins. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we would like to thank member and number one Cleveland Browns fan, Dave Foreman of Portland, Oregon, for his support. For more information about our show or how you can listen to the podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International